Welcome back to the Tickle Twine podcast. I'm your host, Brooks Bellman, and with uh, the NBA Finals two days away, uh, I wanted to jump in um, and get a conference final review uh, podcast as well as previewing what we are like to see uh, starting on Thursday, as well as maybe doing a little bit of a prediction on my end and kind of just talking about the series in general. Um, Obviously, coming out of the conference finals round and into the NBA finals round, we have a new NBA finals matchup for the first time in a couple years. The Warriors got there once again, five straight seasons, pretty impressive. But they will not be seeing LeBron or Cleveland on the other side. They're going to be seeing Toronto this year. So that's a new change of pace for them. Another new thing that will be happening is we won't be starting the NBA Finals in Oakland like we have the past four years. We'll be starting it in Toronto, across the border in Canada, which is uh, huge um, for the Raptors fan base, which is definitely like, I think the Raptors fan base is one of the major uh, winners of the Conference Finals, but we'll get more into that. Other than that, you know, uh, I thought the Conference Finals were entertaining. Uh, the Warriors swept the Blazers, and it was, it was a short series, but it doesn't mean it wasn't competitive, and we'll talk more about that. And then the Raptors uh, came back from town 2-0 to beat the Bucks four straight times, win the Eastern Conference um, 4-2, uh, with a pretty dramatic comeback in Game 6 to secure it, and just kind of elation on their side. But given that the Warriors-Blazers... Uh, series is a little shorter. Uh, I'll jump into that one first. They also ended earlier, which seems to be much to the Warriors' advantage. So kind of to uh, to just jump right into it, um, the Warriors uh, slept the Blazers. Um, but I think if we just talk about this in terms of a sweep or that the Warriors won all four games, and, and, and you kind of talking about it that way kind of just gets rid of how close this series was because it was it was close you know there's sweeps where like one team could win by 20 plus every game and that's just like a, a, a bludgeoning or one team can win the first four games by like pretty good margins every game or one team can win all four games extremely close and I think that's where we had closure here because the Blazers uh they built double digits leads and I think three of the four games including both of the ones at home um, and the Warriors were just able to kind of go on their patented uh, third quarter runs to close the gaps and then um, take the games home in the fourth quarter, um, which is what we've seen them do uh, time in and time out. Um, and we saw them do it here. It was impressive that they did it without KD once again. So the Warriors have played now five straight games with KD, five straight wins, and their like record with Curry and not Durant is like 32 of the last 33 games, and I think it's like 34 and four is their overall record with Curry and not Durant um, the entire time Durant's been a warrior. But, you know, we saw Steph return to form um, after a tougher, after some tougher series earlier in the playoffs. He averaged 36 um, and a half points a game and hit uh, an average, hit, averaged six threes per game. We also kind of saw a monster uh, series from Draymond. I've been a big Draymond guy. Um, kind of from the beginning of the Warriors dynasty, just kind of his versatility, what he does for them um, defensively and offensively. I mean, we saw it at that game six of the Houston series where the Warriors ran that same pick and roll, you know, 12 or so times down at the end. And it was basically the um, the Rockets blitzing or trapping uh, Steph and him giving it back to Draymond and Draymond playmaking out of that. And just Draymond consistently made the right decision. And I think that's something that we saw 
here in the uh, Blazer series, just kind of to a T every single time. You know, Draymond is constantly making the right decision, both offensive defensively. He was a defensive monster, just kind of all over the place, guarding who he had to guard, trapping when he had to, coming off, coming over and help defense, playing one-on-one defense. You know, I think one of the most mesmerizing things about Draymond when you watch him play, at least for me, um, is the way he guards two-on-one fast breaks when he's the lone man. And, you know, uh, two-on-one should be, you would think theoretically two-on-ones are going to be an easy bucket every single time down the floor. Um, and Draymond's one of those guys that prides himself on making it so that maybe you even consider him having the advantage in that situation just because he's gotten so good at playing the gaps between both of them um, and making uh, the guy with the ball make the wrong decision or something like that. And he wins more of those than you'd expect. Um, I don't know the exact numbers on it, and he probably doesn't win the majority of them because that would be that if he did, that would just kind of be some next level defense. But he does win more of them than you would expect, kind of given the situation you get put in, where you know you're down and you got to go and 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 grab um, and kind of you know you're undermanned and you have to navigate that situation. Um, and given that, but he he played really well, both as the like as I said, both as the trap guy in the pick and roll, and when he was kind of playing safety, not involved in the main action, had to clean up on the backside. Um, the Warriors' offense continued to kind of just churn along as well as it has. I think part of this, and, you know, I'll talk more about as we get towards the end of, of the conference final uh, wrap-up for this series about the well, the Warriors back better with with Katie narrative, which is which it deserves words, but um, not, not long words. But um, I think what, what we see a lot of the difficulty, at least for the Blazers and for the Rockets in Game 6, um, in guarding the non-Durant Warriors. They just play a little bit... We've seen them play with a little bit more urgency, a little bit more energy, and just the constant movement of Stephen Clay um, is very tough to guard, even with, with the most elite defenders, and the Raptors will be tested with this starting on Thursday. But both of these guys do a great job of relocating. They do a great job of moving off ball, staying in constant motion, reading what else is going on. Um, Kerr does a great job of um, drawing up maybe not set plays, but just actions or simple you know, simple things to just kind of get them playing in somewhat of an advantage. And then from there, um, you can get in real trouble because all both Clay and Steph only need a tiny bit of space to be able to get um, get a shot off. And so the fact that you have to be constantly locked in defensively just to keep them from getting an open shot is obviously draining offensively and making each and every possession harder and harder um, on both ends of the court. And we saw what the, we saw what they did that what that did to Portland. You know, Portland jumped out every game, um, played well in the first half. They had this set way. You know, they're ready to go. They're ready to play. They had a game plan. They were hitting shots, hitting shots, and you could just kind of see his game set on. They could kind of get a little bit more tired and a little bit more tired. And that's when you know the Warriors make their run. Coming out of the halftime, they all they just they're just ready to come out the gates, banging and shooting well. And we saw that so often. Another big key. Um, for the Warriors' offense throughout the series was just how well and how often they targeted um, the Portland bigs, uh, especially Enos Cantor. Um, you know, we saw in Game 1, and this got a lot of run, that, you know, the Portland played this deep drop defense. I mean, that's kind of um, something that they've been playing all season where they drop back and they played the war- they played the Warriors like that in the, in the regular season as well, especially uh, even though they don't have Yusuf Nurkic out there because of his injury. Uh, even without him, they kind of stayed in the same same scheme. They're like, look, this is what we're going to do. 
Um, we're going to still drop back and do our scheme like that. And, you know, on the face that a lot of people can, you know, point out whether you're experienced watching the NBA or, or experienced with basketball or not, oh, that seems dumb. How can you drop someone back? Stephen Clay can just pull up. And that's obviously the initial reaction. Um, but I think the idea with Portland is we've played the same way all season. We're not going to change up how we play just because it's the playoffs, and, and that's how they wanted to go. And I think um, something we'll talk about with Toronto, with the Toronto Golden State Series in the finals, and I think kind of what we got a little bit of for the Trailblazers that happened here is I think a, a big issue with the Warriors, and like we saw with the Rockets series in Game 6, the Warriors thrive when you when you don't mix it up a little bit defensively. And, you know, I know that's tough. Like, um, if you're a coach and if you're game planning, the idea that you're going to have, you know, five or six different things that you're going to want to run and do and you're going to switch up when and how you're going to do them is, you know, it's going to cause chaos for the offense because they have to adjust to a new thing, sure. But it's also going to be extremely tough on your defense because they got to be able to communicate um, how they're defending in a new way, communicate the new how they're handling all the actions. They have to be locked in and on the same page because if everyone isn't on the same page and someone still wants to do the old thing and everybody else has moved to the new thing, that's an open shot. So I understand the difficulties of that. I just think that we probably will see that a little bit in the final series and something that teams especially in a playoff series, need to be able to do against the Warriors is mix it up. You know, in the regular season, that's a little different because you're seeing a different team every night. There's not the consistency or whatever. But in the playoffs, when you're seeing the same team night in and night out, the Warriors have seen have shown that they are very good at figuring out what you're doing and then immediate, and then and then taking advantage of it if you're just going to continue to do the same thing over and over and over again. Um, and like I said, um, I think... Um, I don't think the Warriors are better without Durant. I think that's kind of like a foolish statement to make. Um, when you take away one of the top 20, 25, 20 players of all time from a team, they don't get better. That's a, that's an, that's a very, um, just, just, it's just not correct. They're different. They play differently. Their style might be harder to guard, arguably. That, that's an argument you could certainly make, but they're not better because, I mean, Kevin Durant's better than the replacement, you know? If the Warriors, you know, Hampton's five lineup or whatever, they're five men they're going to go with their Steph Clay, Kevin Durant, Andre Udall, and Draymond. If you take out Kevin Durant and put in, you know, Sean Livingston or Alfonso McKinney or even Kevon Looney, who's played really well in these playoffs, you're not getting better. You're, di- you're different, and you're going to play a little differently, and that might be harder for the other team matchup-wise, but you're not getting better. You're not improving as a team because it's it's not really something that can happen when such a good player is taken off the floor like that. And so I think um, that's what we have to talk about. If you're going to talk about how the Warriors change when Durant's on the floor versus when Durant's not on the floor, it's the, that they're different, not that they're better one way or the other. Um or I do think they're better with Durant. It's just they can't be better without Durant. They're just different, and they're going to play differently, and they're going to act differently, and they're going to look differently, and they may play with a dip- different urgency. That's certainly what we saw um, in this series. But overall, it's a great series. It's going to be interesting to see how they continue to play in the finals with Durant out and how they go forward, but they definitely kind of showed that they're still the class of the West and they still deserve to be reckoned with. As uh, for the Trailblazers, I don't think that a uh, loss in the... Western Conference Finals, even though it was a sweep, can can um, kind of change how we look at and talk about um, their season as a whole. I still think this was an extremely successful season for them. Obviously, they fought all the way to the Conference Finals, even though their third and arguably second best player at times this season, Yusuf Nurkic, was hurt uh, for the entirety of the playoffs. Um, Damian Lillard played extremely, you know, he, had, he was up and down, uh, depending on the series, but he still played well, and he's arguably the third best point guard Um in the league, um, or second best in the league, the way you want to um, look at it. 
Uh, CJ McCollum also played extremely well, both in the Nuggets series and at times here in the uh, Warriors series. I think they will have some interesting decisions to make um, coming in cap space-wise, who they bring back, who they don't. Also, as well, um, Damian Lillard making all NBA team, all the All NBA teams this week. Um, he was the second team uh, qualifies him for the Supermax extension, um, which means they can sign him. It's it'll start. Uh, I don't think uh, next season, but the year after, it'll be like forty million a year. It might not even be next, the year after next season. It's like two. It, it's a couple seasons out, um, but it'll start. It's like forty million a year for four or five years, and uh, it'll obviously take Damian from his it take him to his mid to his early to mid thirties, and so there's uh, resultingly um, in kind of some of the eulogies about the Blazer season that we've seen. Um, people are talking about, oh, how do you handle this? What do you want to do? Something like that, and it's like that's that's tough for me to because it's I guess you can say that this is the tough spot that Supermax puts you in um, if you want to make that argument, and that maybe the Blazers don't aren't sure that the supermax and that much money is going to be uh, what Damian should be paid. You know when he's thirty five, which he will obviously still be, pay, be getting paid somewhere in the forty million dollar range when he's in his mid thirties um, because of the supermax. And will he be worth it then? I don't. It's hard to project, but given aging trends and how players um, kind of begin to to regress a little bit as they age. Um, you can suffice. It's safe to say that he probably won't be worth the upper forty million as a thirty-five-year-old. It's going to be tough to fill that. But I, I still think that makes it hard. Even given that, it's a hard sell to be like, oh, well, they probably shouldn't sign him to that, or they shouldn't offer it to him. Um, I think it's hard to just make that argument when, like I said, I think I think arguably Dame is the second best point guard in the league, and to make the argument that he doesn't deserve a super max just because you're not sure what your ceiling is with him or you know the length of the contract is certainly is certainly difficult, and it's a tough reality. Um, and I think it's a, a unforeseen consequence of the super max. I think if you're Portland, given the, what the heights he's taken you to, he's arguably the best player in your franchise history, depending on how you feel about Bill Walton and all that stuff. Um, it's hard to make the argument that he doesn't deserve to be paid if you're Portland because he has taken you to new heights. He has done pretty well um, as a player, um, and he's going to continue to play really well for for the foreseeable future. And he's got a great a game based on shooting, so if he can shoot consistently, he can age better. So um, I think what this situation and the, and the talk around it should lead the NBA to doing is we don't need we, we might need to rethink. Not the Supermax in itself, but how it is handled uh, cap-wise. Um, I forget where I heard it, but I think an innovative strategy with the Supermax, it might have been Zach Lowe. He, he has a lot of the best ideas um, because of how well he knows the league. But like uh, the idea is that you can still pay them the Supermax. So you know, Damian Lillard is going to get paid the Supermax. It's going to be $40 million or whatever for the next four years. But because it's the Supermax and because he hits certain criteria – you're going to pay him 40 to 50 million but it's only going to count for x amount on the cap. So, you know, if you can either benchmark it to a percentage, which probably makes the most sense, it's going to be like, okay, all super max extensions, once the player hits this level and can get paid this x amount, um, the player can get paid whatever, put the range as, you know, it's like 45 million. Let's say that. The player can get paid 45 million as as the first year of his super max and it can go up x amount every year. However, for the entirety of the deal, the cap hit for the Supermax deal can only be an X percentage. And so the way that would work out is like, oh, yeah, we're going to pay Damian Lillard 45 million. So let's say the cap is $100 million. It's, 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 it's above that already, but just for 
just for ease of financial calculation purposes, and it, it, the example I'm trying to make is we say the cap is $100 million. Once Damien qualifies for the Supermax, he is allowed to be paid um, $40 million on the first year of the extension. That can, that can then go up $2.5 million a year to the fourth year. So then first year is 40, second is 42.5, third is 45, fourth is 47.5, something like that. That's the base numbers for the money. However, he is only going, because this is a super max and because we want to encourage players staying with their teams and rewarding them for great play and all this stuff, he can only count against the cap for 30%, and it will only increase by half a percentage point a year, I guess, or something like that. And so then, the first year of the extension, he can only be 30% of the cap. So the cap's $100 million. He's getting paid $40 million. But he can only be a thirty percent hit, so his cap hit is only thirty million. So that's an extra ten million there in that in the scenario that would then Portland would have the freedom to apply um, to fill out their roster and build a championship contender. Go and so what, I think this could be a solution because it's not like every team's going to have multiple super maxes and there's rules about who can qualify and when you can get it. And so what this would in fact do is it would incentivize guys like Damian Lillard, like Anthony Davis who hit the numbers, they get that Supermax eligibility, they choose to sign that Supermax eligible, but they don't want to then put their team in cap hell, especially because given the parameters, that Supermax deal looks like its extension is always going to be in that late 20s to early 30s areas when it's going to start and then it's going to go out. So what you're seeing is the Supermax extension is either going to be middle to end of prime or end of prime to beginning of the regression and because of that the amount of money thus makes it a hard pill to swallow and so to 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 handle that or, or make it easier and actually turn it into a true reward i think we should work off a smaller percentage of the cap because then it rewards both rewards because that that's a, just as much a reward to the player the player's still getting the money they, their team then has more money to go get and put better players around him so he can be competitive, and we don't have this issue with these players getting being like, oh, I've got all this money now, but you can't field a team around me. You need to trade me right now. Um, and then it rewards the team because the team is committed to a player. Um, they get extra cap to use for that player, and, and it goes from there. And then obviously this could get complicated with trades and stuff, but then you have to turn it into a find a way. Well, it's like, okay, well... If, this, if it occurs that you sign your player to a Supermax and year two of the Supermax you decide you want to trade him, well then, you know, we'll have to figure out how, this, how, the, how the salary matches up and how that works because then it, the, the Supermax deal then becomes worth its true amount. So when trading it, you still got to get $40 million matching salaries if you're both over cap, all that kind of stuff. Um, but I think that would be a better way, and that would obviously make this decision, I, I think it's a no-brainer decision for the Trailblazers anyway, but it would make it even more of a no-brainer because of what else is going to be in play there. So um, I don't know if that's something we would ever see as a solution, but I would be certainly intrigued and would be and would hope that the NBA would kind of explore stuff like that. Moving on to the Eastern Conference Final, um, we had the, the Raptors closing out the Bucs. Uh, the Bucs won the first two games. Game one was close. They dominated in game two. It looked like they were in control of the series. A lot of people are like, oh, they'll go the Raptors. Have, do they even have a chance? Which... You know me, and you've been listening to me or following me on Twitter, I think is an absurd way that we handle the playoff narrative of just whoever won the last game, it's, it's assumed they're going to win the rest of the game. So that's just not patently false. The Ra- We kn- knew the Raptors were going to get back in this game, and they did, back in the series, and they did. They came out, they beat the Bucks four straight times, they dominated them in a, a couple of games. 
Uh, game three was super close. You can make the argument that game three was there where it turned. It was double OT. If the Bucks win there, um, I think they might. They probably win the series, but they lost in OT. Um, obviously, the big uh, switch that we saw was the Raptors kind of changed the series when they made Kawhi the primary defender on Giannis. Giannis struggled um, to score against Kawhi. There's numbers on it. Basically, Kawhi's defense just plummeted his offensive rating. Um, the Raptors also do a good job of packing the lane in anytime Giannis drives, especially if he had gotten switched off Kawhi somehow um, and kept the Bucks from running in transition by, you know, making shots on their offensive end, but also building a wall, blocking, slowing Giannis down, uh, slowing any of the Bucks guys down. Because you saw anytime the Bucks got out and run, it was basically a guaranteed bucket. But the um, Raptors did a good job of keeping that from happening on a consistent basis. Uh, Kawhi was particularly incredible in the last two games. But not, not only with his scoring, we know Kawhi can score, he's going to get to his spots, he's going to hit his shots, um, but he also rebounded extremely late, and he played, he played, he made plays, like play made, um, and got actually got assists and passed a lot better than I expected, you know, um, Kawhi, arguably at this point right now, is the best player in the league, um, with uh, LeBron where he's at, and we'll have to see how the finals play out, but... When you look at Kawhi, there are a couple of spots where his game aren't as strong. You know, he's a little bit more hesitant to pull up from three. He likes to do some standstill threes. And you know what? He pulled up from three in this series and drained him. So maybe that's less of a uh, weakness. Additionally, um, Kawhi is a good playmaker, a good passer, but not a great one. And he made some great passes. He was consistently getting other players involved. Um, and the other Raptors were hitting their shots. And so that was a big thing to come through, especially in the last two games. Um, additionally, Kawhi is obviously playing incredible defense, not only on Giannis, but all other bucks that he got switched onto and just kind of being a havoc. Um, and I think this is, this is a big series and a big playoff run in general for Kawhi. I mean, last season was kind of a mess with what all went down in San Antonio, all leading up to him getting traded to Toronto, where apparently he didn't want to go. And now, you know, eight or so months later, uh, Kawhi has completely obliterated the legacy that DeRozan built over seasons um, by taking them to the finals and just kind of being consistently dominant for them. Um, this is a place somewhere that the Raptors have never been before, and Kawhi's gotten them there in one season, and obviously LeBron's no longer in the East, and that's probably a big part of it too, but still Kawhi deserves his due that he kind of powered um, this Raptors team and got them where they are, uh, where they are at this point. I still want to touch on um, how the Raptors played great defense. They shut the Bucks down. Um, they made everything harder on Giannis. They kind of they sent him early double teams and stuff like that. And we'll talk to him, talk about that more when we get to talking specifically about Giannis. But I think another thing I want to talk about is the fact that the Raptors, even though the Raptors played great defense, Kawhi played incredible. He was the best player in the series. That even then, when you this series was extremely, extremely close, and there's actually one outlier performance that I want to hit on because I think if this performance wasn't an outlier performance, and not just wasn't an out as wasn't just like this this performance was so much of an outlier that even if this player overperformed what they actually are, the Bucks would have won the series. He had to overperform to the level he did to kind of change the series that way. And the guy I'm talking about here is Fred Van Fleet. Um, Van Vliet is a career 39% three-point shooter, um, and a, and, um, and a playoff career 37% three-point shooter. He, however, he hit 14 of 17 threes in the last three games and 11 of 14 specifically in the last two games, um, to carry them. Van Vliet had hit 78% of his threes 
in the last two games and 82% of his threes in the last three games. And so to put that in perspective as to how good that is, like I said, he's a career playoff career, 37, overall career, 39% shooter. Um, if he had made, if he had shot 38%, he would have had made five threes in the last two games instead of 11. The fact that both of the last two games were divided by six points, or divided by, um, yeah, divided by six points each, and three extra missed threes um, by Van Fleet in each game, because he would have made a six less than 11, because he would have made five, that's an 18-point, uh, total 18-point difference, but nine-point difference in each game. That swings the games. And now, this is not to take away from anything that Kawhi did and anything the Raptors defense did. Those were the keys to the victory. But I think it's important that not only um, that we mention how incredible Van, v- Van Fleet played and the fact that he turned it around from earlier in the playoffs where he wasn't playing well and even earlier in the series where he wasn't playing well and that he was able to shoot this well down the stretch and just kind of take over these games. Not really in the fact of the matter is that um, he's the guy that's everything's running through, but like Van Fleet, I was most, watching this game, I was most worried for the Bucks is when I saw Van Fleet standing wide open and a pass coming to him because it was like, oh, he's canning this because he only missed three threes in the last three games. And when you just get to that level of heat and just level of shooting ability, it's just something that you don't regularly see. And I saw another point on Twitter. So I, I did the calculation that if he had shot his normal percentage, 38%, they probably would have lost. If he had shot 50%, they probably would have lost. So even if he shot way better than he usually does, they probably still would have lost. But the fact of the matter is, is he was near perfect, and that's kind of what changed it up. For them, it's just him having such an incredible impact above and beyond what you usually expect from him um and how that changed the series in the raptors favor um like i said i was gonna get on to Giannis and how well he played um Giannis, much like the Embiid and the sixers um was very emotional very disappointed after um the game six loss he clearly you know had given um the series his everything and just wasn't enough I think what we saw is the Raptors knew what to do to make it difficult on him, and they were very successful. And so while Giannis had a tough series at times, he did play really well, and it is important to note that the when Giannis and Kawhi were both on the floor, the teams were played to a draw. Um, and then when Van Fleet was on the floor, that's when the numbers got crazy. Another reason I bring Van Fleet up as the, as the X-factor and the game-changer in the series. But I think Giannis has a clear idea of what he needs to work on um, moving forward. We saw any time... He had the ball and got into the middle of the paint. The Raptors collapsed on him, and he wasn't able to make the passes and either forced up shots or kind of drove to the rim and uh, tried to get fouled and might, maybe got fouled more often than um, was called, but that's neither here nor there. Um, he just kind of collapsed from a solid free-throw shooter to a just miserable, like worse-than-Shaq-level free-throw shooter, shooting like around 50%. Um, that has to be figured out um, in the offseason. He's got to do a better job of, of when he drives in, reading and passing. And then also, one advantage that they could get um, be, uh, was posting him against Kawhi. Because even though Kawhi is so athletic and he is extremely, extremely strong, you take away his athleticism when you force Kawhi um, to defend in the post. But the Raptors' way around that was to just send a double almost immediately, and Giannis couldn't couldn't pass out when the double was coming. He couldn't. Um, find the open man before the double got there, and he would just have to dribble, dribble out and reset it. So I think 
Um, those are a couple issues. I obviously, I think that um, I don't want Giannis to turn into some jump shooter who's jacking eight threes a game, but I think if he um, gets to the point where he's hitting threes at a 35 to 38% clip and can confidently hit a mid-range two, um, I think that will change his game. Um, we saw Kawhi go to the mid-range pull-up often in this series and how it helped him open up every other parts of his game and open up the Raptors offense for other players. And so I think Kawhi needs to add something like that to his arsenal. Um, but while Giannis is coming back better and stronger than ever, the Bucks are obviously going to have a couple of tough choices. How much are they going to pay for Middleton? Do they match whatever restricted off to Brogdon gets? Who, who else of these teams do they bring back? And I definitely think that'll be interesting. It's, it's definitely a conversation worth having as to whether, um, they can win a title and compete further with Middleton as their second best guy. Um, if they need a third guy who's a little bit better than Middleton, and how that all works out, and I'm excited to see how they do it. But I, I think, um, I think this is just like how it was for Embiid and the Sixers. Um, Giannis and Embiid are both very they they care a lot. They have a lot of potential. Um, they have some 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 clear weaknesses that they both know that they can work on, and they're extremely passionate. And the fact that they both went out in very tough fashions, I think, is um, promising for their futures. Um, more than anything else. So um, now to get on to the, I guess, biggest part of the podcast and kind of previewing uh, the finals. Obviously, like I've kind of I said at the top, this is interesting. We get to see the first finals in uh, for a new matchup in the finals for the first time in four years. The Warriors will definitely not have Durant for game one, but he is traveling to Toronto. Um, I still think it's probably low that he plays in game two, considering he doesn't seem to have done any on-court stuff yet. However, Kerr has said that he thinks Boogie could come back and play as early as game one. He's just worried about um, DeMarcus's conditioning. So that's another thing. The Raptors now have their third straight match where they have to uh, dial up their defense and, and again, shift their defense once again to playing to addressing the sh- uh, different strengths for a team as they look to slow down another prominent offense. Obviously, Kawhi is an incredible on-ball defender, but he's not nearly as elite off the ball, so it'll be interesting who he starts out on. The Warriors are obviously going to run a, t- a ton of actions to force switches and make you trail and make you kind of make decisions as to how you guard stuff defensively. And so what that probably means is that Kawhi won't always end the possessions guarding the same guy he started on and, and all that, but... Um, like I mentioned at the time, I think a big key for the Raptors and how they set up their defense is the fact that they don't show the Warriors the same thing over and over again and let the Warriors hone in on killing it. I think we will see Kawhi rotated around, um, at least when Durant isn't there. When Durant's, um, if Durant comes back, Kawhi will probably be tasked with just guarding Durant and, um, staying on him like glue. But until then, we will probably see him moved around a bit and, um, he might be on Steph for a couple of possessions, might be on uh, Clay for a couple of possessions. They might put him on Draymond and let be like, okay, if, if Draymond's going to leak out on the traps, I'm going to I'm going to help out there and and kind of move him around to see where best he fits um, to dominate um, and if, apply his defensive pressure. And we'll obviously see the counter chess match of the Warriors and what they do on the other side. Do they? If whoever's Kawhi's guarding, do they force that guy to just run around screens all day and let other action go on? Um, and kind of like that. That's what I would expect. You know, like I said, Kawhi is basically a God-level on-ball defender, probably one of the best we've ever seen in the NBA defending on the ball. But he's he's merely an elite top top 3% of the league when it comes to off the ball. And while that doesn't mean he's someone you're going to target off the ball, there's a difference there. And, and um, if you're the Warriors, you might push 
if Kawhi's whoever Kawhi's guarding, you might be like, all right, let's run you off of a couple down screens and some back screens and maybe some elevators off the ball and then have some main action going on the ball on the other side of the court and just kind of see if that can at least keep to, keep Kawhi from playing and help and kind of force him to occupy it, also make him run more, um, tire him out, and whatnot. But on the other side, the Warriors are going to have their own tests um, stopping Kawhi themselves. Um, without Durant, they don't have a guy other than Iguodala to just plant on Kawhi and say, go do work. Um, but Iguodala was injured. He didn't play the last game against Portland. He's had more than a week to recover, and he definitely needed it. So we'll see what he's got. But you can definitely see that Iggy is a step slower. He's aging. He's clearly um, not not the elite guy he once was, but he's still up near the top. And how well he plays could very much be key um, to how well they defend Kawhi and what um, um, and and how they make it harder. What do they do? What uh, so the Sixers played Kawhi and that were like, okay, we're gonna just let him get his, and um, we don't think he can beat him solo, and he was able to do that. Uh, the Bucks turn, took another way where they're like, we're gonna collapse on Kawhi and and, and try and make sure that he doesn't. Um, score as much and force him to play make and he played make in the last two games and um, the Raptors made their shots and so that didn't work out as well too so it's the Warriors will probably strike the balance it's kind of reading to see how he's playing per night and kind of they'll do this thing which was what they did against the Blazers where they'll pick and choose who they help off of you know maybe they help off Marcus Saw a little bit but they're not going to help off Fred Van Viet and Kyle Lowry you know maybe they help off Siakam a little bit and Ibaka a little bit and they don't help off Norman Powell or Danny Green if he's taking the shots they're going to make they're going to make trade-offs and decide who they help off of and whatnot um in order to kind of bait the um the shot that they want the most like I said uh, I've said this before, but defense at this point, um, with the level and quality of offense and players in the league now, um, is not as much about you're going to be able to stop everything. It's about taking away, you know, the most efficient and the best opportunities for the offense, and having the forcing the offense to settle into second and third options, and then just hoping that that works out. And I think that's what we'll see. Um, I've seen a lot of people kind of predicating their predictions off of if KD comes back and whatnot. Um, I still think um, I'm going to ride with the Warriors here. I think the Warriors will win it with six, um, with or without KD. I, I do think they're going to steal um, one in uh, Toronto and then win uh, three, four, and six in Oracle and kind of wrap it up that way. Um, I think they'll get game one or game two, uh, depending on a couple factors. I think um, Steph is going to have a good series. Um, you know, Kyle Lowry has historically made things hard on Steph, but I think Steph is just going to kind of bring it up to another level. Um, I think he knows it's his time to shine, and they're going to come out firing and ready to go and prove that they continue to play without. They can continue to play at such a high level without Durant and really push anyone and everyone, whether or not Durant's on the floor. And I think um, that's going to be a big deal. But um, I've said this uh, to people I've talked to this casually about. I honestly wouldn't be surprised to see the series go seven. I wouldn't be surprised to see the Raptors win in seven or win in six. Um, I think this is going to be an extremely tight series. Both seasons teams are really, really good. Kawhi is playing at an incredible level. And honestly, I'm just extremely excited to see a new matchup in the finals, um, especially after kind of the other than game one of last season, season's finals were kind of anticlimactic and not the best and I think having a new matchup that's going to be more interesting and, and going to be more of a chess match back and forth you know I didn't really touch on as much but who which centers play for both teams and how long they play is going to be extremely interesting um uh who's going to be rendered unplayable who's going to be who's going to find minutes that kind of stuff I think it's going to be a great finals uh this season and both of these teams honestly deserve it and you know if 
the Warriors win and Steph gets finals MVP. This is historic four and five years. This hasn't been done before since the Celtics in the 60s. Steph is going to stake his claim of where he sits in the Pantheon. All this incredible stuff is going to happen. Um, and then for the Raptors, it's Kawhi comes and immediate, immediately kind of revitalizes the city with one fell swoop and, and, might take, and he might take the crown as best player in the league. Um, from LeBron, and we'll have to see how hard LeBron plays and what LeBron comes back as next year to see if he can win it back. So, um, as per usual, thanks for listening. Uh, rate, review, subscribe, share this with people. Um, I'm trying to organize some good draft stuff, some deep dive into some draft things. Uh, I was going to try and get my guy CJ, who writes for The Athletic. He's been on the pod before to kind of do some deep dive on a couple prospects and talk Suns, but um, I couldn't make it work. Uh, Schedule-wise, that's on me, um, so hopefully I'll have him on soon, maybe next week or uh, in the lead-up to the draft, and then also hoping to do another big mock draft again um for you guys because that's obviously super fun and i think it's a good way to talk about the draft rather than just kind of throwing prospects back and forth i do um i am looking to see if anyone you know whether it be cj or anyone else in my close circle of guys that i bring on consistently has a wildly different opinion on a prospect as me because i think the best uh draft podcast is when you have two guys uh who have wildly opposing views of a prospect and just have them go at it Uh, I think that's the best way to talk about it, so I'm trying to get that set up. But otherwise, definitely some great content coming up with the finals, with the draft, with free agency. You know, I do love the games um, more than I love, you know, this kind of this part of the league. But this part of the league is not without its um, its fun and its excitement and its entertainment. And obviously, we've got drama all over the league as per usual. We had some NBA Twitter drama recently too. Um, but you know, it's all, it's all fair and it's not. And also you are having basketball withdrawals like I am some nights. Um, do not hesitate to check out the WNBA. Um, it is great. The basketball level is great. I shouldn't have to say that, but there's some haters out there. Also their league pass is only $17, which is, uh, extremely cheap and you get to watch great quality basketball and it can fill in that void that is left. Um, when the NBA is not playing or is on an off night or, you know, in a week and a half or two weeks when the NBA will no longer be happening um, and you're going to need some basketball in your life, definitely turn to the WNBA. I've watched a bunch of games since they kicked off last week, and I'm I'm excited to watch more. So um, I will talk to you guys next week.